Hey there, this is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our storytelling family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on our unblushing theme, Ruby Slippers. We are exploring stories about being in someone else's shoes from our story slammers. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. During the slam, we leave space for members of our audience to share a five-minute story. This summer, we are following the yellow brick road with tales told live, without notes or inhibitions, in the walled yard of the old Idaho Penitentiary. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. Now, we'll be hearing from random audience members from the Lullaby League and the Lollipop Guild. Now, click those heels together. It's Late Night Stories. Andrea Wilson! Ow, ow! Come on down. Okay, I'm Andrea, and uh, the time that I got to walk in someone else's shoes happened pretty much as soon as I had my first child. Um, I really thought we were ready. I had been a very responsible young woman. We, were, we, we planned on having our child. I did the uh, crunchy granola birthing class the lactation class. We were ready, but I was not prepared, despite having taken the class, for breastfeeding. I knew it would be hard. People complain about it all the time. Might be painful, time-consuming, but I thought it was pretty much like instinct for mammals. Like you can open Zoo News and see a gorilla breastfeeding their baby. So I figured, you know, it can't be that hard. Um, so I was going to do it. And I did. And uh, my t- we took my daughter to her very first pediatrician's appointment. And they said, she's lost way too much weight. How's breastfeeding going? Well, this is what I do. This is how often I do it. Well, what does letdown feel like? What does it feel like when your breasts get full? And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And she said, that's, that's an issue. Uh, so they had me feed the baby, and then they weighed the baby, and then they, f- I mean, sorry, they weighed the baby, they had me feed her, and then they weighed her again immediately after. She wasn't getting anything from me. And so the doctor told me that I needed to supplement and um, so despite having taken the, the lactation class, I knew nothing about bottle feeding. All I knew about bottle feeding was, you never want to do that. As soon as you do that, your baby will never want to take the bottle again. I mean, t- take the breast again. And uh, so I didn't want to do that. I got this thing called a supplemental nursing system. You put all the formula in a little tube. This was after. I called a friend because I did not know what I was supposed to do. And uh, she said, well, I have some breast milk that I pumped earlier here in the fridge at work. Would you like to have it? And I did not know that that was a thing. (laughs) Um, And it took me all of two seconds to go from not knowing that that was a thing to saying, yes, absolutely, I'll feed my baby somebody else's breast milk. And 
Um, it was in that moment that I realized, am I going to get a light or something? Okay, thanks. Um, it was in that moment that I realized that um, I can't assume that I know what I'm going to do in any given situation until I'm in that situation. A lot of the judgment that I had about other people, you know, what kind of mom I was going to be, um, really flew out the window in that moment. I proceeded to go to La Leche League meetings. I took every supplement that was available on the market, fenugreek, the lactation cookies, the this, the that, and the, the lactation consultant insisted that I would be able to do this because I'm a mammal. Um, I went to a La Leche leg meeting and I found out about a medication. It was called Domperidone, not to be confused with Dom Perignon. <laughs> um, it has an, it's allowed in Canada, so all these women at La Leche League were having it shipped in for them. Here, it's for a condition that I didn't have, and it's not intended for producing lactation. That's actually a side effect. So people would, um, adoptive mothers were shipping this in from Canada because they were able to breastfeed their adopted babies. It was so special. Men were taking this and were lactating. I took this, nothing happened. And I was like, how on earth? I mean, I thought this is just a mammals thing. I should be able to do this. And that was when I realized that, you know, if a gorilla in the middle of the jungle couldn't bring in a milk supply to feed their baby, I'm not going to hear about it. I'm not subscribed to the email newsletter for La Leche League for Gorillas. And then I thought about all the women all over the world in remote villages that don't have access to formula. And what do they do? Well, they hand their baby off to another mother that will feed her baby along with theirs. And um, so that's when I learned what it means when they say it takes a village to raise a child. Um, I also then thought about that mom that's sleeping in the car with her child. What kind of mom would live in a car with her kids? Well, somebody that's terrified. <laughs> like, this situation is better than the one they were in. That's when I learned what it meant to say, desperate times call for desperate measures. I had never experienced a situation where suddenly I was able to see that I can't imagine what it's like to be in anyone else's shoes at any time, and that I can't judge people until I've walked in someone else's shoes. And so, yeah, it took my friend saying, want to give your baby my breast milk? And me going, huh? Okay. To, to teach me that. It was a frustrating situation, um, but my daughter was primarily formula fed. I'd sprinkle in some of other women's breast milk whenever I had the opportunity. And uh, she's smart, strong, beautiful. Apparently, breastfeeding is not the end-all, be-all. Thanks.
Maylene Cavazos. I never wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to uh, travel and wear nice clothes. I wanted to have fun. And my mother and her mother were teachers. And when the sub list got ridiculously small and everyone was getting sick, my mom asked me to become a sub. And I thought, okay, yeah, I think I can do this. This will be no problem. My mom's a great lady and uh, she raised four children and I figure I'm the oldest of three younger brothers. I can do this too. So my first day of school as a substitute felt like I was the camp counselor that the kids were going to overturn. <laughs> they were at camp and I was the one holding them back from all of the amazing things they could be doing. I was used to wearing nice clothes. As a substitute teacher, you have to wear clothes that you know are gonna get stained and possibly never able to wear again. <laughs> As a corporate IT person, I was able to have a rainbow or say that I could support different groups of people. And as a substitute, I couldn't have rainbow colors as a poster. As a corporate IT person, I had a $150 per diem expense account that I could put anything on. As a substitute teacher, a classroom chair broke and the other teachers told me what they do is they buy it themselves. As a corporate IT person, I looked the eyes of people who were making six or seven figure salaries and saw them gloss over as I tried to explain something that probably was important to the many people they managed. As a substitute teacher, I get to be on the ground, crawling, playing with toys. I'm a pre-K, this is for pre-K. <laughs> That's a very big distinction. Um, playing on the playground and sliding down slides. And when I look those kids in the eyes, sometimes they say, I love you. I have never been more proud to wear the shoes of my mother and her mother. Thank you. Lori, yay, Lori, woo! Okay, I'm Lori Careview. I'll take care of you, and I'm a special ed teacher, so. Miss, I take care of you. And I didn't, um, you know, being ADD and a little brain dead, 
I come naturally to special ed because I can make any kid laugh. So on my whole, from 10 years on old, I just would do that and everybody in the neighborhood wanted me to babysit and it was great because I had some of those parents where, oh my gosh, you want to get out of the house. And I just happened to get out of the house with um, these actors that were in all these plays. So I got to feed them their play lines and babysit their kid and chip his front tooth while I was taking him sledding. So, you know, I was a great babysitter. Everyone's fighting over me. She brings her own stuff. She cleans the house while well, you always come home to a clean house when Lori's there. So I... I misunderstood the topic tonight. <laughs> I thought it was just ruby slippers, and I thought, I have a great ruby slipper story. I never heard the part about someone else's ruby slippers. I didn't hear that. So I'm here to tell you about my ruby slippers and how I ended up in Boise from Moorhead, Minnesota. Yes, you're right. Moorhead, go! Moorhead, Moorhead, Moorhead. <laughs> you get the picture. <laughs> we Norwegians, we know how to have a good time, don't you know? <laughs> yeah, looks like snow. Yeah. I. I, I had this, uh, I had this great thing about teaching kids, and so I was like, I'm going to be a special ed teacher. I was going to be a PR person, but then you have to lie. I didn't know how to lie very good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is a great product, but what if it's not? I mean, <laughs> then what do you do? So special ed just fell into my lap because environmental science, I couldn't do the chemistry. And it's hard to pass chemistry when you're like me. <laughs> so I got accepted at BSU. I applied to Hawaii and Colorado. Am I not, can you guys hear me? Okay. I applied to Colorado, and Boise was my third choice. And unfortunately, no one from Hawaii wanted to go to Moorhead, Minnesota, so that didn't come through. No one from the mountainous Colorado wanted to come to Minnesota to ski our flat icy hills. That fell through. But Boise State, they, Idaho is desperate for special ed teachers. Can you imagine? <laughs> Who needs a special ed teacher in Idaho? <laughs> so I got a full scholarship on student special you know, student exchange. How many have done student exchange or heard of student exchange, right? So I got to come out here in 78, and it was the biggest ruby slipper thing that ever happened to me. First, my dad was, of course, you're not going anywhere. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got accepted, and I got all the money I need for it, see? Blah, blah, blah can't stop me. So then he buys me this Buick. It falls apart in Bismarck, Moorhead Bismarck. And you might think, 
God, you know, my dad is an accountant at this nice car lot. He should have had a great car for me. No, he wanted me to fail at Bismarck. I would say F word, but I'm not. <laughs> Turns out Bismarck was the only place on my way from Moorhead, Minnesota to Boise, where I had a friend. And I got to spend the night at her house. I mean, we'd been friends since grade school. And then I took off to Boise. And of course, I went down to Utah for a little while because I got lost. <laughs> yes, yes. All my Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts have said, Lori, you get lost, just sit down. <laughs> Ooh, where am I going? <sighs> it's just my brain. So I end up in Boise, Idaho. And like any 19-year-old, it's 1978, and I'm 64 now, so it's lots of years. But it's 1978, I got my stereo, which my boyfriend, Jim, gave me. I'm married to him for 42 years, so it worked out. <laughs> Never mind that. <laughs> but I had my stereo in the back seat. I had my skis on the top because, of course, you know, you gotta go somewhere where you can ski, and boys, he only had 15 miles up to the ski resort. Oh my gosh, I thought I was in heaven, and I, I drove into town, and I don't know if you guys remember what Boise looked like back then, but then when you got off Broadway, you could go down right before you hit the stadium. There was a 7-Eleven and a garden shop. And here comes, I'm sitting on my car, the blue Buick with the new engine from Bismarck, and here come Harry and Mary Black. They weren't Harry and Mary Black then. They were just dating, and Harry was flirting with me. <laughs> but now they've been married as long as me and Jim. And they said, hey, they looked at my Minnesota plates and they said, oh my gosh, you can stay at my house until you find a place to stay. Holy moly. I thought that was the most awesome thing ever. And so I stayed at Mary's house for the f two weeks it took me to find an apartment up at that Bromback Apartments where the old army barracks used to be. 650 a month, all utilities paid. And, <laughs> and Harry and Mary floated me down the Boise River on the, I am, on the first day <laughs> On the first day I was here, I got to float down the Boise River with Harry and Mary Black, and they are my youngest son's godparents. <laughs> That's my story. I clicked my feet and I found all these lovely people. Please welcome Sarah John. Hi. Um, unlike Lori, um, I'm a very good liar. And <laughs> I work in PR, so yeah, or mar marketing, marketing and PR. Um, so when I first heard this, uh, the theme for tonight, um, what came to mind was um, 
a little bit of a story about my childhood and my upbringing. So I'm not going to be able to see people in the audience anymore. Um, but has anybody heard of Malad, Idaho? Right. That's where I'm from. And if you know about it, then you probably know that it's a little bit um, on the conservative side. Um, just a little bit. Um, I grew up there, and my parents, um, I'm not sure how they ended up choosing to live there. Um, I have these two lovely parents. Um, neither are deadbeat. So grateful, <laughs> but um, they, uh, but they did raise us in Malad, which is sort of questionable <laughs> to begin with. Um, but I was raised in um, in Malad, and my parents are really liberal, and um, and I really don't know why they chose to raise their family there. But a little bit of background on um, my family: um, I have there's four kids in the family. So my brother being the oldest, and then a sister, myself, and then a younger sister. And um, one other thing about Malad is that um, it is heavily populated with uh, religion, and one specific religion, and um, uh, that religion is Mormonism. And uh, my family's not Mormon. So we were already outsiders. In fact, um, both sides of my grandparents owned a bar in Malad. And that is when you know that you are different than everybody else. <laughs> but um, my mom and dad um, raised all four of us there. And I think like each of us had our different ways of um, feeling like we fit in. And so um, my brother fell into um, some, he fell into some addiction, um, pretty severe addiction. He found a group of friends that, um, that accepted him. And, um, and a certain group of people, like the majority of people, did not accept him. And then there was a little bit of a, like, a red mark, like a scarlet letter on us as a family. So my older sister decided that she would do the exact opposite, and she got baptized Mormon. And then I realized that I could maybe be a good actress and pretend to be, to fit in with people in Malad. Um, so that's exactly what I did. So I wasn't joking when I said that um, I could be a pretty good liar. Um, but, um, but basically, I ended up um, uh, doing all of the things that I'm not sure that you're supposed to do if you're not Mormon, like go baptizing for the dead. Um, <laughs> and get a patriarchal blessing, um, graduate from seminary. Um, I did all of those things. And um, at one point, our um, stake president, who was a seminary teacher, um, I danced through high school, through actually my whole life through college. And um, our dance coach in high school um, gave us a very important lesson. She told us that um, we were still virgins if we gave our boyfriend a blowjob. And that's really crucial to learn when you're in high school, you know. <laughs> so, um, so anyways, I learned that. And um, I guess maybe because I wasn't Mormon, um, the seminary teacher called me in and asked me, like, if, um, 
the dance coach had taught us about oral sex, and I said no. She told us about blowjobs. <laughs> I didn't know that they were the same thing, to be fair. Um, I was pretty innocent, so I was like, my mom's like, I can't believe you said blowjob to the stake president. And I was like, mm -mm. I mean, if you explain things better to me, then I would have known this. they were the same thing, but I didn't, so it's clearly her fault. Um, anyway, I, um, I put on a, I put on a very good role, and throughout my um, entire life, I've sort of like looked back at um, my experience in Malad and had a little bit of resentment towards the people there for one treating my brother terribly and blaming them for like some issues that he created himself um, and some decisions that he made, and then resenting my sister for choosing to become a part of that population. And probably who I should have been the most mad at was myself for putting on this really dramatic show of being um, sort of Mormon and fitting in. I don't know. Um, I think my little sister found the best balance um, in that she was just herself. And she never um, felt the need to put on a show or lie um, or... I don't know, I guess just find a way to fit in because she always felt more comfortable in her skin. And um, I always envied her for that, for just feeling so comfortable and um, knowing who she was and not feeling the need to be somebody else or put on a show for anybody. Um, but during the pandemic, I had, um, and throughout like my whole duration of being like living in Boise and, um, and I'm in my 40s now. It's been a long time since I lived in Malad. I went to college and then I moved to Boise. But um, I think that um, during the pandemic, I found like a lot of peace in going home, like as a total extrovert that was not able to be social anymore. I started spending weeks at a time with my parents, which I hadn't done since I was in high school. And I just started to find like a place where like home actually wasn't as bad as I had created in my mind. Thank you. Oh, Nicole Force, hi. Nice to see you. Um, thank you, Lori, for telling your story about ruby slippers. Um, <laughs> because my story is also about myself. <laughs> um, I kind of wish now that I had brought a story about my mom or um, you know, something like as deep as what I heard here tonight. Um, but I suppose this is deep in its own way. Um, there was a story that was told to me about an important man who had lost all of his clothing and belongings and cash um, when he was traveling in India. Um, in the Rajasthani state, he discovered jodhpurs, which are the original polo pants. And um, he returned to England with them, where they found they were a competitive advantage as well as so fashionable that um, women like Queen Elizabeth II and Coco Chanel made them famous. This story was told to me with a sparkling eye cast to my son and me as we had landed in New Delhi without any of our luggage. Our luggage was the most lost <laughs> of all. They had no clue. <laughs> it was going to be a while. Um, so here we arrive in the middle of the night, um, looking like ghosts, 
and um, no clothes and bank cards that don't work in their post-COVID world. Um, I, literally, it was like being dropped in a foreign country um, with, with nothing. So they took us anyways. <laughs> um, in hindsight, there weren't a lot of other Westerners to take, and um, the borders had just barely opened, and they had missed tourism dearly. Um, fortunately for me, my husband had gotten um, rooms at the Imperial um, where he had stayed previously for work before COVID. And um, that's where they took us in. And they gave us kurtas, which are white pajamas, so we'd have something to wear that night and while we were getting our clothes cleaned the next day. And they said they'd wait for the bank. <laughs> um, anyways, walking around the hotel hallways as the only white woman there wearing a combination of kurtas and the linen slacks that I had arrived in. I must have looked like an initiate ready for holy. Um, everywhere we went, people wanted to take a picture of us. Uh, <laughs> it started at the step well of Agrisindi Beli um, with this, this really sweet, cute little girl who honestly was probably there to um, hawk or panhandle. Um, but she looked up at me and very um, sweetly pulled out this old, dusty word from her vocabulary, forgotten from almost three years ago. Selfie? <laughs> <laughs> I felt so bad that I didn't take that picture with her right at that moment because I didn't really know um, how much it meant. So I asked my husband later about this, and he said that he had occasionally been asked for selfies when he was there before, and that it wasn't a big deal, um, it wasn't a hard thing to do, and it meant so much to some people. Um, he showed me how to get chummy. He said, just lean in a little and smile like you're really good friends. They'll love it. Say namaste when you're done. So I tried doing this thing. I tried becoming a people person. <laughs> and um, as we continued on to Jodhpur, um, me, the only one now, without any of my luggage or clothes, <laughs> going to the city of pants, um, <laughs> a selfie here or there suddenly became a phenomena. Now, I did get some Indian clothing, and I felt a little conspicuous as we got to Jodhpur. Um, there hadn't been a lot of tourists there for a long time, and I was still wearing, um, I was wearing exercise tights, aka yoga pants, <laughs> and a women's kurti and my old beat-up tennis shoes that I liked to fly in. And they were kind of embarrassing. It's a more formal society. So um, I switched those out for Indian sandals and picked up some new eyeliner skills so I could blend in. <clears throat> we took a lot of selfies. Um, and everyone got in the photo. People would say things like, it's been so long since we've had tourists here. And um, when are more tourists coming? And we haven't had white people here yet. And do you like President Trump or President Biden? <laughs> they knew a lot about our politics, come to find out. <laughs> so I said my preference <laughs> and then added, um, it's the discussion that's most important, not necessarily perfect agreement. Hmm, maybe, they said. Well, selfie? <laughs> uh, I finally got my luggage, and at that point I had to decide 
as we traveled down south into the very hot weather, if I wanted to keep some of my Western clothes or retain some of the Indian clothes that really were innovative for heat. So I was pretty mixed by the time we traveled down to Fatipur Sikri. I noticed as we went further south that um, there was fewer families at these tourist sites and that um, there was more younger educated people, some professionals, and we were on a packed bus going to the monument and my conversation failed. Did I mention I'm an introvert? <laughs> this did not come naturally. Um, so finally, after like, I can't even talk to this person about anything interesting, I look over to this young man and say, hey, you want a selfie? <laughs> selfie! <laughs> the whole bus behind us lit up. <laughs> Everyone was selfieing. <laughs> so, um, so generally speaking, I found that um, most of the people that were roughly of our demographic loved American culture. Um, there was white people on all of the billboards when we got over there. Um, however, there were some places that we went that I realized that wasn't the case. There were a couple places that we went that probably were a little dangerous. So after this group selfie on the bus, I was a little wary when um, a young woman pulled me aside in a dark corner of the monument. And, um, but I listened to see what she had to say. Um, and she said, why are you taking all of these photos? Do you like India? Are you making fun? <clears throat> and I said, I love India. I just got my yoga teacher training certificate and um, it's so beautiful here. And look, and I started showing her all of the selfies. These people are happy, they're happy to have selfies. We had about 150 selfies in my phone at that point in time after a week of being there. <clears throat> and she said, then why are you here? And suddenly I realized that um, that this important conversation was just too big. This was the most serious thing I'd had to talk about since I came to India. And I realized it was too important for a smiling facade and additionally too important for my shyness to come across as being cold or as not caring. And so I told her quite seriously and she saw me now for who I was, a serious person, which I had pretended not to be. Um, I said, I saw a movie during COVID and how the invaders came down from the north and how they killed all of the men at Vapor Sikri and what the women had to do here. Spoiler alert, they immolated themselves to avoid rape and being enslaved. And since then, I just wanted to come to this site and see where they had lived and touch this place. I wanted to see the monument to the queens. And she knew exactly which movie I was talking about. And she named it for me because I'm a dork and I can't say it. <laughs> um, and then we cried a little bit together. And then we stood side to side and it's the best selfie. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find us. Thanks to guest host Beth Norton and musical guest Randy Anderson. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. 
Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.